Good to see you. You may be surprised to see me up here because I'm surprised to be here. I was not scheduled to speak today, but Pastor Ben has the COVID. All right, so uh, I'm, I'm uh, Dan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. You pray for Ben, and as he recovers from that, he's feeling much better. He really, really tried to be here today, but uh, just, just wasn't quite ready, and I'm sure none of us really wanted to get exposed to it again. Anyway, so, but I do pray for him as he recovers from uh, another bout of COVID, and um, pray for our team. We, this is this is an odd time of the year because, I mean, we are just slammed because it's the holidays and so forth. Uh, but, for instance, right now we've got 40 members of our team who are somewhere over the Atlantic flying back from a 10-day long trip to Germany. So Pastor Jason, many of our technical people, our choir, uh, they're, they're on their way. They'll land about 2.30 this afternoon, but you want to pray for them. Many of you know about Mike Kozlinski, who is our, our residential count, uh, uh, counselor, and uh, pray for him. He was diagnosed with cancer 10 days ago, a very, very serious situation. He's been in the hospital ever since. He's going to be in the hospital for the foreseeable future. He started chemo on Wednesday and has the five bouts of that, and then a week of observation, then hopefully a week of recovery, and then he'll do that again and again for the next three or four months. So please pray for him and his family. Continue to pray for Abby Gordon, who is responsible for our kind of our pastoral care oversight and coordination. Uh, she's been in the hospital for six weeks now and uh, had a surgical procedure on, on Friday that was really, really important, hopefully to get some relief from pain, but we need to keep remembering her. And uh, we've, we've, it's, it's like I say, right now we are running on bare bones. So I, I would ask you this, please be patient. I did three 14-hour days this last week, all right? I mean, I'm doing my best to stay on top of things. Pastor Trey's doing his best. We're just a little short-handed right now. If you've got an emergency, you call us, though. We'll be there. Our elders are jumping in. They're helping carry some of the load and so forth. But it's just a kind of a season where we're stretched in. We have those in families. We have those in churches. And, uh, and we'll get through it. And we've got some good things going on. As uh, we continue adding members to our team, we've got some interviews tonight for that. So uh, you pray for us, but I just kind of want to give you that explanation in case maybe you're saying, where is everybody or what's going on? Uh, we just, we're just in one of those seasons, but we'll be out of it shortly because 2024 is going to arrive. And, um, uh, you know, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you about 2024. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's been a few years since I really looked forward to that tick of the calendar that allows us to start a new year. I think the last time I really got excited about that was 2020. And we all remember what happened that year, right? <laughs> okay. So I, I, I don't know whether that just kind of warped me or, or, or whatever, but now when the calendar gets ready to tick over to the new year, I'm like, uh-oh, here we go again. What's going to happen? And, and in reality, um, I'm not real optimistic about 2024. Um, I'm kind of dreading it. And you might say, well, why, you curmudgeonly old pessimist? Uh, what's going on with you? And, um, but have you forgotten 2024 is an election year? And that always just brings out the best in us, doesn't it? I mean, honestly, I mean, it's just it's something about it makes peace on earth, goodwill toward men. You know, I, that isn't going to last. I, I, I have this impression. Uh, the other night I made the mistake of watching about 37 seconds of the debate before I said, that's enough. I can't do this. Um, it, it, the reality is, is that that brings out a lot in us of, of conflict on national level. It spreads on the social media, Thanksgiving tables and, and, and so forth. We, we just kind of have to watch out. But, you know, for the first 25 years of my adulthood, I, I, I was enthralled with politics. I, I considered myself quite the activist at, at one point. I, you know, I supported 
um, uh, campaigns as a volunteer. Before I could even vote, when I was 16 years old, I was out putting Reagan posters up in my town of Moberly, Missouri, because I wanted to make a difference. You know, it was kind of odd, but um, uh, you know, I, I wrote articles. I became a precinct captain. I I hosted you know rallies. I I I was the subject of a multi-part uh, series in the Palm Beach Post back in the 1990s uh, for um, my role as an activist pastor. Um, I spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. and Tallahassee, Florida, lobbying. And even in the 1990s, I considered running for Congress uh, at one point. It wasn't a, a long consideration, but uh, <laughs> when I realized it took money, uh, I'm, I'm out. But uh, the, the reality was uh, I, I've had an interest in it for many years. But around 2004, I think it was, um, things shifted for me. And now... I'm not going to be disingenuous. I'm still very interested by the American political system. But from that point, I've been well detached, I guess, from the level of hope that I attach to it. Um, and as subsequently, then the interest and particip participation levels dropped dramatically. And, and, you know, from time to time, I'll check in on a race. And, and I always vote. I'm very serious about that. I even try to watch the debates regardless of both sides, just because I want to be educated. Um, but I will tell you, there's something that's changed in my lifetime about the tone of, of discourse politically that, that really rankles me, and I have difficulty with it. And um, the other thing is the Lord did a work in my life years ago where it was, you know, I've only got one life to live and only so much energy to invest, and God did not call me for political office. He called me for ministry. And so I consciously shifted at that point. But, you know, as I watched the process of politics, and this is not a political sermon, so relax, um, I'm always fascinated by the sheer ambition, the utter confidence, and let's be honest, even the arrogance that comes for many with their desire to be president or some high elected official. You know, the surety of their own wisdom and skills and persuasiveness and intellect and winsomeness is just stunning to me. They truly believe that the greatest seat of influence is at the top of the pyramid of power, fame, control, and status. I, th I think they really believe that. Jesus completely flipped that paradigm while he was on this planet. People expected him to be the king, the unquestioned Messiah of the earth. They forgot his role in heaven and focused on the power that God has loaned to his creation. If there's a message that he modeled in his life and in his ministry, it was this. If you want to really lead in God's kingdom, you must be willing to serve in God's kingdom. That was his message. That was his model. That we must serve if we really want to Lead. We lead by serving. Whether it was washing the feet of his disciples, talking to those who were broken 
and social outcasts, eating with those that most others consider to be wicked and beneath them, healing the overlooked, weeping over the lost, noticing the forgotten, or simply being born into a stable, hung on a cross like a common criminal, being buried in a borrowed tomb. His example was consistent in that he was showing the way up is down, the way to lead is to serve, the way to exaltation is via humility. So today we're continuing this series on bless. You see the big letters here on the platform, and I I hope you're remembering them as we go through each week. We began with B, which was begin with prayer. And I hope that you are beginning with prayer. I hope, by the way, that you have already kind of gone through the book on 21 days of prayer that that we've given to you, and we've got some more that we'll be distributing here shortly. We had to reorder because the first load went out so quickly. But beginning on January 1st, we're going to have a focus on on prayer. Who is it that is close to you but far from God that He would have you during 2024? Point to the kingdom of heaven. Point to Christ. Point to salvation and repentance. Point to things that are eternal. And we begin with prayer. And that, that's, that's where we have on this series. And then the letter L stands for listen. So many times we're so busy talking, we forget to shut up and listen. First to God, but also to those who are crossing our path. We're so convinced, you know, it's always interesting, I go back into politics again, but it's always interesting to me that, you know, they talk about, well, this politician, that politician is taking a listening tour. I always see that, but I never see them listen. They say they're listening, but mostly they're talking. And I realize I'm that way too. You know why? Because we all like to talk about ourselves. We think we're fascinating. We think we're interesting. We think we're brilliant. But when it comes right down to it, we just need to be quiet. We just need to hush up. We just need to, my mother would scold me for saying this, shut up (laughs) and listen and listen. So that was the second thing. Then we go to the next one, and that's eating. Well, I'm good at this one. All right, so I'm telling you, that one, that one was last week. Andy did a, a great job, though, of explaining how that at, the temp, at the, that at the table we have unique opportunity and how God has throughout all of human history and promises us in the future that at his table there is room. At his table we can enjoy his presence. At his table we invite others to join us, that it is open for all. So that's a wonderful thing. So today we were from the B, L, the E, and now we're on serve. We read the passage this morning of James and John, the sons of thunder. The James and John, the guys with ambition. James and John, who were relatively close to Christ in many ways. They were, they were a powerhouse duo. And they get involved in this, what, what honestly is a ridiculous, a ridiculous exchange with, with Jesus. And uh, then the next thing you know, all of, all of the others uh, uh, get all worked up about it. And, and finally, Jesus had to say, boys, 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 come here. Uh, here's, a, here's a teachable moment, guys. I, I want you to listen. And in this passage, Jesus once again emphasizes the privilege, the joy, the responsibility we have at whatever state we think we might be as a leader, a follower, whatever. But number one, he's wanting us to see is be a servant. Look around you, be quiet, pay attention, and serve those around you. 
For years, one of my favorite epigrams, and I actually used to put this on a 3 by 5 card and would keep it in front of me. I use it in some of the courses I teach, but it, it, goes, it goes like this. You impress people from a distance, but you impact them one-on-one. -on -one. You impress people from a distance. Yes, look at him. He's good looking. He's smart. He's, he's articulate. He's, he's successful. He's, and, and when you see that, but when you really want to make an impact with someone, you sit down with them. You listen. You pray over them. You share a meal with them. And yes, you even serve them. If you want to leave a lasting impression of what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ, in the toolbox that God assigns to each of us to leave impressions and influence and memories and messages in the lives of others is service. This morning, I want you to remember this. You don't have to be a Billy Graham or a Charles Stanley, or a John Piper, or a J.D. Greer, to be the one who introduces someone to the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll say this, it might be more likely, but at least I believe as likely, that there are people in your world, people that you live next to, that you exercise with, that you go to lunch with, that you work with, that you are best suited to reach with the message of the gospel. And no one else could impact them like you can impact them. There's something about being a pastor, and this has always annoyed me, but it's a reality. But if, I, if I'm out and meeting people that I don't know, and they ask me, well, what do you do for a living? Because that's what dudes do, right? All of us guys, we, you know, we don't know what to say. So we say, hey, what do you do for a living, man? You know, that, that seems to be the first thing that falls out of our face. Like there's extra value to some careers. And so we're measuring them up by what do you do? How much do you make, you know, in our heads as these things are going on? And that happens frequently with me. And I, and I will tell you, and I'm, I'm you know, you, you may disagree with me on this. Um, I, I'm, I'm very conveniently positioned on this because all my life I've, I've been bivocational. I, I've always worked two jobs, um, which is one of the reasons why I end up working 14-hour days, except right now, by the way, I want you to know that I'm not teaching for the first time in 17 years, so all 14 hours are, <laughs> are, are spending in ministry. And it's a good thing the Lord knew that in advance, that we were going to go through a tight time right now. But, but, but here, here's what I do. They'll say, what do you do for a living? And I'll say, I'm a, I'm a college professor. And when I say that, because that's true, I am. When I say that, they'll say, oh, really? What do you teach? Or they'll say, uh, where at? Or they'll say, and they start asking me questions, and I'm able to forge into a conversation. But there have been occasions where maybe I'm not thinking on my feet fast enough or whatever. I'll say, what, what are you going to say? I'll say, uh, well, I'm a pastor. And it changes immediately. Yeah. There's a tension as they re went, re said, did I swear in the last three minutes? Yeah, maybe I should move this glass of wine over here. Um, you know, but it, it does. It, it's, it's a palatable change. Um, and often the next part of the conversation will either go to, uh, oh, well, I, I, you know, I'm a church-going person, or, or my grandfather was a pastor. Or, but immediately it gets just 
It, it, it just gets awkward. And, and I really hate that about my, my, my job because the reality is being a pastor is hugely important to me. It is my calling, but it is not my identity. My identity is in Christ. And I would hope that my identity would be the same whether I was a pastor or a politician or a carpenter or an electrician or an engineer, whatever I might be, I would hope that my mission, my passion, my character would be the same. And I'm afraid that what often happens is there is a mentality that develops is because I'm not a pastor, I'm not qualified to speak about what, what God's done in my life. Because I don't have a degree from a seminary, I, I can't authoritatively declare the gospel. And I want you to understand something that's wrong. It's not true. And in reality, God may position you with people that the moment I open my mouth, the moment they realize that somebody calls me Pastor Dan, there's going to be a wall built that will not exist with you. And often, that, that wall becomes a road, and that road is paved with serving. We can serve each other. And we can serve in the name of Christ. And when we serve, we communicate the very humility, essence, character, and nature of a God that was willing to subject himself to the worst moments of the creation that had rejected him. And in that, and even at that moment, God is glorified. So, right before this passage, by the way, is something interesting, then, then we're going to pick it apart. But Jesus had just told the disciples that he was going to be tortured and murdered. If you go back up and you read the few verses before that, he's having conversations, and he's, he, he's basically, and there are multiple times in the Gospels where Jesus kind of paused and, and does some foretelling. Because even the disciples couldn't figure out that he wasn't there to set up his earthly kingdom. They were still confused about this. They, they kept expecting him to pull out a robe and a crown real quick. Because this is what this was about. He was king of the Jews, right? And they kept looking for this moment of revelation. And he kept having to pat that down, tap that down. And he's finally getting to the end of his ministry. The time is drawing near and he's having to tell them. He said, look, I need you to understand something. This isn't going to play out the way you've envisioned it. I'm going to be taken captive. I'm going to be beaten mercilessly. I'm going to be murdered ruthlessly. You need to prepare yourself for that because the kingdom I'm here is not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. But it was hard for these young guys to get their minds around that. And even though Jesus basically told them in black and white what was about to happen, when they hear this, they begin jostling for position about when they do get to heaven. Well, God, if you're going to die, Lord, if you're going to go to die, then can I sit next to you in heaven? Like, I mean, is there going to be like three seats in a row? We're going to be at a table. Is there thrones? Are there platforms? How's this going to work? Because I've got to tell you, Lord, I'd like to be on your right. And if you'd let my brother be on your left, that'd be really cool. 
That's literally what these guys are doing. How offensive. You tell somebody, you, you know, tell somebody, hey, I'm getting ready to, to, to die. Uh, can I have, your, can I have your, your gold piece? And can I have your watch? And, and can I have your gun collection? That basically where they were going with that. And we would see that, and perhaps you have seen that at a funeral or two, and you think, how rude, how awful, how insensitive. And yet this is exactly what the disciples were doing. is ugly and unseemly. But you know, I wonder how much of what we focus on in our own spiritual journeys is just flat out offensive to God. You know, many choose attitudes of Christian carendom. You know what I'm saying about that? You know, the the meme, the, the cliche, person who's always got to make everything about them. We whine and moan like entitled Karens who don't like the service they are receiving at the Christian target. And so we walk around with this self-entitled spirit. The auditorium was too cold. The music was too loud. The sermon was too long. That's when I'm preaching. The parking is inconvenient. We don't want more activities. I think we need a church-wide picnic at least once a year. We want bigger buildings or nicer buildings. We want better quality. How come I always pay more attention to me? How come no one knew that I was in the hospital? Why didn't I get mentioned for this? Why do I get over? And we stop and think about it. And again, I'm not trying to be offensive. I am trying to be real. Many of us live in this world where we think, I want to sit right next to Jesus. I want people to notice me. I want to be exalted. I want things comfortable for me. I don't want to have to experience inconvenience or suffering or persecution. I just want to be like Jesus. Well, if you want to be like Jesus, serve. Get down with the folks. Love people. Spend time with people. Listen to people. Eat with people. Exercise with people. Pray for people. Listen to people. Because that's what Jesus did. James and John, possibly under the urging of their mother, Salome, who was an interesting lady, wanted position and power, status, and privilege. These noisy sons of thunder had missed what was being lived out right under their own noses for the last three years. The way up is down. Serving is leading. God's values are not the world's values. Let's look at this passage if we could. Join me in verse 35. We see this beginning to play. James, John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now stop and think about that. Stop and think about just that request. Jesus, we're getting ready to ask you something. We're not going to tell you what we're going to ask you. We just want you to go ahead and guarantee us that whatever it is we ask you, you're going to give us. That sounds like a six-year-old before Christmas, right? You know, now, mom and dad, I, I, I want something big for Christmas, and I'm not going to tell you quite yet, but will you promise me that whatever it is I ask you, you'll get it for me? Because I'm thinking pony here, all right? Now, this is, this is literally, again, you can cut. And by the way, don't be too surprised at this, because these guys were probably still in their teens, at the very oldest, their early 20s. But, you know, the frontal lobe had not completely developed in these dudes yet. And so there, there's a lot of impulse control issues we see here among these young men. And, and, and so they, they asked this question. Now look in verse 36. And he said to them, he plays along. Well, what do you want me to do for you? I can almost just, I can, I can almost just see him. They, so they asked this outrageous question, and Jesus is like, well, this is going to be fun. What is it, boys, that you would like for me to do for you? 
Oh, and the guy said, here's our chance. Look at that. He's, he, didn't, he didn't shut us down. He's listening to us. Now, I, I know, and no, I do not write for the chosen, okay? But I can see between the lines here, and this, this is very real to me. It jumps out. If you've known teenage boys, you know this conversation is just absolutely plausible. And, and, and here's what he said. They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand so we can bask in your glory. And Jesus said to them, guys, come on. You don't, you, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Now, again, they're thinking drink cup. They're thinking baptized in water. And he's thinking, no, I'm thinking about what I'm getting ready to go through in order to purchase your salvation, guys. They didn't have the full picture yet. They were asking something prematurely. And here's the first thing I want you to notice. Don't aspire to what is not part of God's plan to grant. Don't aspire to what is not part of God's plan to grant. They were asking inappropriately. They were asking for something that was not in God's plan. Now, God could do anything he wants to, anytime he wants to, however he wants to do it. We get that. But you also understand this. God has not orchestrated his entire kingdom so that you and I can get our... He's not, he, he's, he's not living in a little lamp that you can rub and get wishes from. He's not a magic genie. He, his, your wish is not his command. He's the God of the universe. He sees all things at all times and all places at once, past, present, and future. All authority in heaven and in earth was given to him. And we are but bit players. So the level of arrogance to demand that God keep us happy and give us every little wish of our heart is not biblical. Because here's the other thing. Many times what we'll do is we'll ask for something that is not good for us. Can you imagine how James and John would have changed in that moment if Jesus had said, yeah, guys, you know what? I love you best. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I got that. We're cool, right? So yeah, hey, man, I'm, we're going to work this out. You're going to be on one side, James, and you're going to be on the other side, John. Man, we're going to rock the universe. Can you imagine how that would how that would have come across to the rest of the disciples? How that would have impacted them? They would have never been the same. They would have been corrupted because the seeds of the ego that allowed them to ask such an outrageous question would have borne fruit in their life. Now, God didn't squash them. Jesus didn't humiliate them. He explained things to them, but the answer was still no, guys, no, guys. You don't see this the correct way. Look, if you would, in verse 40, Scripture says, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And what he's basically saying is, look, the Trinity here, we got this covered. All right? We act as one. And here's what's going to happen. No. No. This isn't for you. This was never planned for you. It's a little outrageous that you ask, quite frankly. Right? So here's the second thing. Don't worry about the seat to which you've been assigned. 
Don't worry about the seat to which you are assigned. And, and, and we understand this. God has a plan. There are things, there are mysteries in heaven and his order and the universe and time that you and I are not even capable of comprehending with our finite human minds. But we do know this, that if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, repented of your sins and are thinking or, and trusting in him alone for salvation, at least you get a seat at the table. The marriage supper of the Lamb is yours. You've got, you've got the invitation. There's a role for you in God's kingdom. You are adopted into his family. Your future is secure. Now, how that's going to play out, <coughs> God has not chosen to reveal all those details at us, so quit worrying about the seat. I think one of the most damaging hymns of the 1940s and 50s that we ever wrote ever had wrote, a guy by the name of Iris Stanfield, and many of you old-timers are going to remember this, but I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Remember that old song? The first piano solo I ever played was that song in my country church with 50 people in it, all right? And I played that as the offertory of our church, and I, oh, my mom and dad love that song, and I love that song, and so forth. I've got a mansion. We would talk. Oh, yeah, man, I want, and we all had like southern bellum, uh, southern antebellum mansions in our head for some reason. You know, big oak trees and big porch and so forth. Um, today it would probably be the Biltmore, but you know, something modest, something modest. Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't say mansion. It says dwelling place. Mansion is a poor translation of what that verse really says. Because in our language, when you think mansion, it's bigger than I'm living, right? And we think of the most outrageous. But Jesus said, hey, look, don't worry, guys. I've got a dwelling place for you. You're going to be with me. And by the way, when we're in the presence of Jesus, it isn't going to matter how big your house is. <laughs> it isn't going to matter what street you live on. None of that's going to matter because you're in the presence of God. And that's all that's going to matter. And you know, here's what we need to realize this. When you are in the presence of God, all the worldly ambition and the arrogant pride and all the stuff that pollutes our thinking and makes us compare ourselves with each other and puts us into competition with each other and makes us think we're better than the guy who lives on the street or better than the person who didn't go to college or better than the person who lives in another country or better than the person that makes, has different colored skin or an accent or better than the person who hasn't had some of the privileges we are. None of that matters in heaven because he's all that matters. So don't worry about the seat to which you're going to be assigned. Just be thankful that you get to call him Father, Habba, Daddy, and that you are adopted into his kingdom. Look, if you would now, let's go back up to verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Uh, the answer to that's a big no. And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with the giant baptized, you will be baptized. And the bottom line is, he's reminding them, and he would remind them again, y'all are going to die for this. There's only one apostle that didn't die, and that was John. All right? But, but, but here, here, here's, here's the deal. You're going to suffer. You're going to be tortured. And my redemption plan is for you. We get this. All right? But here it is. Guys, Really, this isn't up to you. Don't be jealous over the roles that others are asked to fulfill. I've got my role in this. You've got your role in this. Each of the disciples are going to have, and he's going to emphasize this in multiple ways during the rest of his ministry. But the bottom line is this. God has a plan, and he's got a plan uniquely for you. 
So quit comparing and quit competing. If there's two things that are lethal to good Christian fellowship is when we compete with each other and when we compare ourselves to each other. Like children arguing over who got the bigger piece of pie, we stand before a holy and righteous God and say, I deserve more. And that's inconsistent with the character, the nature, the emphasis, the philosophy, and everything there is about God, who says, you want to lead? Be a servant. Number four. We're going to drop down a little bit. Verse 41 is interesting. And I'm not going to, you know, exegete it clearly, but look at what he says in verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. All right? So this caused a stir. Who do these guys think they are? What in the world's going on here? What do you mean? What do you mean you want something like and, and, and they're saying, do you hear this guy? What jerks? I don't know why God puts up with them. You know, they're, they're, they're off this. And so you can almost hear the rumblings. And so look at what Jesus does. Does, De- does Jesus humiliate James and John? No. Does he squash them? No. He says, guys, come here. Let's have a huddle. And then, beginning in verse 42, he teaches them. And by the way, that, that's so important for us because sometimes we, you know, even in our... Even in how we respond to other people's sin, we sin. You know, so look, look, look at that guy. And, and Jesus said, oh, look at that guy. Look, they're young guys. They're idiots. All right, come on, guys, gather around. Let me try this again. Let me teach you. Aren't you glad that Jesus is patient with us in those, those moments when we say and we do something that's foolish and stupid and, and selfish and, and so forth? And, you know, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like your older brother. Every once in a while, he just like cuffed you on the back of the head and said, you moron, stop, stop, quit talking to dad like that. Or get in the car, quit, you know? And that's kind of like Jesus does so sometimes. Come on, come on, come here, come here, come here, come here. Let's try this again. I'm going to talk real slow so that you get it, okay? And, and that's what he does. Look, look in verse 42. Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And he began to be saying, guys, you know this. It's one of the reasons you hate the Gentiles. It's why you hate the Romans. You see these guys strutting around in their uniforms, these centurions, and they're nobodies because then you got, you got Herod and you got Caesar somewhere we've never even seen. You got all these guys strutting around with, and they think they're so important. And he says, don't look to the world for how to live your life. That's not what it's about. Don't look to the world and how you live your life. And folks, in Lake Norman, can I remind us of this? If you live on the lake, don't look at people in South Charlotte. If you're in South Charlotte, don't look at the people on Manhattan. And if you're in Manhattan, don't look at the people in Dubai. Here's the bottom line. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. If you and I got what we deserved, we'd already be in hell. So everything we got is better than we deserve. But the bottom line is that when you look to the world for how to live your life, you're going to live in constant dissatisfaction with your circumstances, even though you're blessed to know the king of the universe, that your eternity is set, that heaven is your home, and that you're loved beyond comprehension, you're still going to live this life of, yeah, but I could be sitting at the right hand. Yeah, but don't you think I deserve a little better? And Jesus said, don't look to the world for how to live your life. Now look in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you, he said. But whosoever, whoever would be great among you must first be 
servant. That word there, by the way, in the Greek is diakonos, which literally means helping others, helping others, serving in the name of, all right? And whosoever or whoever would be first of you must be slave. He takes it up a notch. Different word though. And this word here translated means bondservant. A bondservant is a slave who chose to remain a slave. All right? So the bondservant is the guy who said, you know what? I like you as my master. You're a good master. I have a place to live. My family is cared for. I want to, even though I can be free, I want to be your bondservant, your slave for the rest of my life. The master would take him to the doorpost of his house, the place of authority. He would take his earlobe and put it up against the frame of the door, and he would take it all, and he would drive a hole in it. Long time before gauges were cool, this is what they would do. They'd punch a hole in your ear, and then they would put a gold uh, ring in it, and then they would hammer the ring so that it was sealed. It could, you'd have to break it in order to get it off. It wouldn't slip off. It was permanent. And when you wore that lobe, that gold ring in your lobe, you're saying, I belong to my master voluntarily. I'm a bond servant. And that's how you would know. And that is what we are. When we ask Christ to save us, you are becoming a slave to him forever. You understand that? Forever. And you are his to do whatever he wants to. When we, when, when we come into the realization of that knowledge, we will serve because we know we were never intended to be the master. We were always intended to serve the master. So, here's the last point. Don't hesitate to sacrifice for others. He said, whoever among you would be, should be first among you will be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, watch me, watch me. Watch what happens the next few days. I could call 10,000 angels down and finish this, but I'm not. I'm going to let them beat me, and I'm going to let them strip me naked. I'm going to let them pound a crown of thorns on my head. I'm going to let them beat me to within an inch of my life, and then they're going to nail me to a cross. Then they're going to drop me in the ground like a common criminal and let me hang suspended while the blood drains from my body. And then I'm going to give up my fleshly life. And then three days later, I'm going to rebuild this temple right here. I'm going to rebuild it. And you're going to see me. And you're going to know who I really am. But in order to do that, he had to humiliate himself. And folks, when you humiliate yourself, when you get down on your knees, when you open up your wallet, when you go mow somebody's grass, when you make a meal for someone, when you listen respectfully, when you give a hug, when you do a food drive, when you comfort someone who's weeping, when you take someone on an errand, when you give up something you have because someone else needs it more than you do, you're being like Jesus. You're living the gospel. You're modeling the character that runs completely diametrically different than everything in the world and its system says you should be doing. You and I will not stand on a platform and try to convince people how great we are and that they should vote for us. But you and I can make an impact that lasts a million years longer and then some 
by simply picking up a towel and washing feet. By doing what Jesus did on the last night of his life with his disciples on this planet. And they gathered in the upper room and they came in hot and sweaty. Their feet caked with the dirt and dust of the filthy streets of Jerusalem. And he said, wait just a minute. Hang on. Don't come in. Just wait there. And he gets a bowl. And he gets a towel and tucks it in his belt. Hang on, hang on. Now put your foot in this bowl. And he washes their nasty, gnarly, hairy, calloused, disgusting feet. And he takes the towel and gently, lovingly, pats them dry. And says, okay, next, next. Peter, being the big mouth guy that he was, Lord, you're not doing that to me. No, sir, ain't happening. I'm telling you this. And Jesus said, well, let me just say this to you. If you won't let me do this to you, then you're really not one of mine. You're really not one of mine. Because what I do is I serve people. And if you won't let me serve you, then I'm done. And because Peter, again, frontal lobe still working, apparently still working on getting developed, wasn't he? He's like, well, then just wash me all over, man. Just come on, let's go, let's do this. Because I want it very, very clear that you and I belong together. But in that moment, that quiet hour of reflection, one of the heaviest moments of Jesus' life, what did he do? He stopped, dropped, and grabbed a towel. That service. And that's what God has called us to do. Don't hesitate to sacrifice and serve others. Think on these things. Arrogance puts the focus on us. Humility puts the focus on others. Arrogance puts the focus on me. What? I need to be more comfortable. I need to be more noticed. I need to be more influential. I need to have more resources. No. Arrogance puts the focus on us. Humility asks, how can I help you? How can I serve you? What can I do for you? This is another sermon, but I'm going to do this, and I'll be done in four minutes. Okay. We fight a perception in Christianity today that's very real, and it weighs on me, and it frustrates me. Because the media and the popular culture and the internet and so forth, you know what, you know what it does? It takes the worst examples and elevates them like this is everybody. Have you noticed that? It takes the worst, the most egregious, the most out there, the most extreme, and puts it out there where everybody can see it. Years before, you hid shame. Now you broadcast it. And it's impacted the reputation of Christianity heavily. Heavily. I'm reading a book right now called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, absolutely rocking my world because I know a lot of the people in the book that he's writing about. But the bottom line is this. Many people in the world view Christianity like we are all right-wing, evangelical, MAGA-loving, Republican, conservative, political activists. Now, let's be honest, a lot of us are. But that's not how I want you to view me. You know how I want you to view me? Somebody who will stop, drop, and grab a towel. And I don't care. I don't care where you come from. I don't care where you're at right now. 
I do want you to see Jesus in me. But that's what we fight, which is why several years ago I said, no more political labels for me. I withdrew from the political party that I was a part of because I don't want to be identified with that. You say, well, that means you don't care. Oh, I absolutely care, and I vote every election, but I care more about what people see in me than whether or not I'm politically aligned with them yet. But that's not just it. I'm the chairman of the board of an organization called Ministry Watch. Ministry Watch is a national organization that looks at ministries, tax-exempt ministries, and sees how they're spending their money. Then they rank them so that so that philanthropists can know whether or not they're, they're good. You can look them up on the internet. They're all over the place. And I'm the chairman of the board. Recently, we released a thing that showed the houses of the top 10 pastors around the country, around the world. And it would make you want to vomit. They were all prosperity gospel preachers, by the way. I'm going to say that right now. Prosperity gospel is, is one of the most hideous things that has ever infected Christianity in the history of the world. Right? It's horrible. It infects poor countries the worst. But when you see people living in 60, 70, 80 million dollar homes, we have an elder here that likes to say this. Remember this, every time that you get a buck over something like that, that that costs the blood, was paid for by the blood of the Son of God. So we need to treat our money pretty carefully if you're in ministry. But you know what? People then expect Oh, well, see, that's it. That's those money-grabbing preachers. That's the way they are, those Christians. You know, stupid people giving money to the pastor. Pastor goes out and buys a house. Nice house. No. 99% of the pastors I know live in houses that are very modest. You all see Pastor Ben's house. Pastor Ben lives in a house smaller than the one I grew up in. He, cho- he chooses. He could live in a nicer house. He chooses to. He wants to live the modest life. I don't like to live quite as modestly as he does. I'll confess that. <laughs> But you see, that's, that's the specter in which we live. We have a little thing in our, we have a Facebook page from our neighborhood. And you, and you know, last week I got it. I get it every week. JW is in the hood. You know what that means? Jehovah's Witnesses are knocking door to door to door. And it's, everybody knows not to go to the door. They literally send out an expression, JW, because they come every week. But you know, a lot of people don't know they're between JW and a Baptist and Episcopalian and an Evangelical and a denominational. They just think we're all nuts because of what they do. The priest scandal, the Southern Baptist scandal, all of these things, and this is Satan's tactic. We are never going to fight that if we don't start turning into servants who live legitimate lives that are honest, that are the same in public as they are in private, that are filled with the nature and character of Jesus. We've got to get back to living like Jesus lived. Number two, as long as we're thinking of ourselves more than we should, we will think of others less than we should. When we think of ourselves more than we should, we will think of others less than we should. As long as we keep wanting more, we'll not worry about those who have less. Number three, your greatness is not reflective of how you lead, but of how you serve. Your greatness is not reflective of how you lead, but of how you serve. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, watch for opportunities to serve. God's going to bring somebody across your path this week that you're going to be able to make a difference in. I'm not talking about buying them 12 presents to put underneath their Christmas tree. I'm talking about doing the same thing in March that you might do in December. Watch for opportunities to serve. Number two, stop, drop, and grab a towel intentionally. If you think it's beneath you, it isn't. 
You know what I love? I see Mark Porter back there. I love this man. He, we worked together. He used to be a superintendent of, of, of the, the schools in, in the Florida Keys and, and extreme South Florida or whatever. Two or three weeks ago, somebody comes to me and, and goes, something's overflowing in one of the bathrooms. Something is overflowing in one of the bathrooms. And, and so I'm in the middle of something. I see Mark. I say, Mark, he said, on it. I go in a couple of minutes later. He's in the men's bathroom with a mop. Mopping up mess. Making sure that when somebody comes in, they're not going to slip and fall and that it's going to look right. See, stop, drop, and grab a towel. If a job needs to be done, doesn't matter your status, doesn't matter who you are, pick up a mop, pick up a towel, pull out your wallet, give somebody a hug, love somebody in the name of Jesus. Last thing, use service to others as a pathway to sharing your gospel journey story. Use service to others. You know what we need to do? We need to stop seeing those around us as projects and start seeing them as people. They're not a project. They're a person. And if you can serve them, God will open the door. They'll ask the question. And you need to answer the question. You need to be honest. Because i got to tell you, I ain't doing this if, there's, if, if it wasn't for the nature of God in my life. I'm too arrogant. I'm too proud. But every time God puts that in my path and I do it, I'm reminded of what Christ did for me. And what I did was nothing, nothing compared to what he did. If you want to be a leader, be a servant. Because servant, serving is leading. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, thank you so much for the example that you set for us. Father, in humility, Remind us over and over again how great it is to serve, to just serve. And yeah, Father, you'll raise people up for temporary positions of leadership on this planet. And we get that. We need it. We need it in our homes. We need it in our churches. We need it in our government. We need that. We know it. But Father, the only one that really matters is the king of the universe, and that's you. And so, Father, let us play our roles with patience. Let us do what you've called us to do.